Mark 11 as we look at one of the gospel accounts of Christ's entry into Jerusalem on what is often called Palm Sunday or is termed the triumphal entry, Mark 11. And I want to read the first 11 verses of Mark 11. Last Sunday night we were looking at the last verses of Mark 10 where blind Bartimaeus outside of Jericho called upon the son of David to have mercy on him and he received his sight. And now we come to Mark 11 verse 1 and we hear the very word of the Lord. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. There we end the reading of God's holy word and invite you to ask for the Lord's blessing with me in prayer a moment. Shall we bow our heads together? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the true history recorded for us and recorded in such a way as to show us our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray you to open our eyes and our ears to see the glory of our Savior and the wonder of his humble salvation. We pray you let your word be preached truthfully, that you guard us from error, that you, Father, would visit us today in the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, it's It's really quite a change, quite a change here in the life of the Lord Jesus. Because up until this point, Christ has been somewhat hidden. Jesus has often dodged the pursuits and sidestepped the attempts of those who would take him and put him on the throne, who would crown him king. Jesus, remember, at times has even healed people and then told them not to tell anyone. 
But now at Luke chapter 11, Jesus comes into Jerusalem openly. He comes accepting the praise. He comes riding on a donkey. This is the last week of his life, and now he, he needs to be revealed as king. He's headed to the cross, and he needs to show them who it is who will hang on this cross. It's time for Christ to reveal his messianic identity in clear terms. And the Bible makes clear, doesn't it? One of the things emphasized in the, the gospel accounts is this fact that the Lord Jesus goes to the cross willingly and sovereignly. He is the master of his own situation, isn't he? He's the Lord of all that happens here. The crucifixion is not going to be an accident. It's not something that takes Jesus by surprise. He's not a, a helpless victim who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But Christ, with, with sovereign determination, is marching towards the cross. In fact, as we read what goes on here in Mark 11, it's clear that Jesus is actually, he's provoking his own death, isn't he? Jesus could have, in the midst of all the hustle and bustle of the Passover going on, think of all the pilgrims that were flooding into Jerusalem. Jesus could have just inconspicuously snuck into Jerusalem. But instead, he goes out of his way to cause a scene. Jesus excites the enthusiasm of the crowd, knowing full well that their excitement for Jesus is going to enrage the religious leaders and, and force them to act. Jesus, by what he does here, is really throwing down the gauntlet and demanding that they deal with him. Christ is Lord. He's in the driver's seat. And so as we see Jesus come into Jerusalem, we see his glory and his majesty. Because this is our Savior. This is our sovereign Savior with foreknowledge, sovereignty. He rides into the city, a kingly procession to the throne to reveal openly that he is the Messiah King sent by God. Notice as we look at this text, the first thing Jesus seems to be doing is to making a claim. He seems to be making a claim. It's interesting how much time Mark takes to tell us how Jesus got a donkey colt to ride into Jerusalem. It's actually, notice we read 11 verses, and it's six out of those 11 verses that are taken up with the acquisition of, of a cult. Now, can you imagine if when the President of the United States was inaugurated, if the newscasters had spent half of the newscast describing how they acquired the limousine that the President used on Inauguration Day? Oh, I know you can, you can find stories about the limousine if you want to. You can go read all about it, but those are sort of back page and distant stuff. It's not the thing that's front and center. But in Mark's account here of, of the triumphal entry, over half of his account is taken up with the acquisition of a colt. Jesus draws near to Jerusalem and near to Bethphage and Bethany, and he sends off two disciples on an errand, and he tells them, you're going to go into this village, you're going to see a colt tied up. You take the colt, you untie it, you bring it to me. And if people say, what are you doing? Then you say to them, the Lord needs it. Strange, isn't it? It's a strange procedure. 
Why doesn't he say you go into the village and you'll find a colt, and when you see the colt, knock on the door and say, you know what, Jesus of Nazareth, he's, he's going to enter Jerusalem, he'd like to borrow your colt. Or if this was a prearranged thing, why doesn't he say you go into the village, you find the colt, you knock on the door and you say, hey, it's us, we're disciples of Jesus and we've come for the colt. Jesus says you untie the colt. And if someone says, what are you doing? You say, the Lord needs it. So they do that. They, they go into the village. They find the colt. They begin untying the colt. People say, hey, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord needs it. What's happening here? What's happening? Jesus is asserting his claim, isn't he? He's the king. He's demonstrating the authority that belongs to his office. He, he comes in the name of the Father. He's been sent on a mission and being commissioned for this task. He comes with authority to save, authority to deliver, authority to restore. He's not coming to Jerusalem to win an election and to get authority from people, is he? He's coming with a, an authority from heaven to deliver you and me from our sins. To bring glory to God in a restored creation. To take back what Satan has taken. It's marvelous authority. We saw some authority displayed this past week, didn't we? When, when Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, he, he issued an order that, that they could go into hospitals and medical facilities and take medical supplies and redistribute them to places that were in need. And we saw President Donald Trump, he invoked the Defense Protection Act, or Production Act, I guess it's called, which they say was enacted in 1950 in the response to the Korean War. The Defense Production Act, where we could requisition materials and, and the production of things that we need. Well, how can a president do this? How can he demand factories make what he wants? How can a governor demand that they take medical supplies away from someone to redistribute them? Well, they can do this because they're vested with authority to protect their people, to save their people. You might even think of what a policeman is supposedly allowed to do to commandeer your vehicle if he's on a police chase and needs your car. And the scholars tell us that that the commandeering of a beast of burden was a prerogative of a king in ancient times. So now Jesus sends two of his disciples to do that, to commandeer a beast of burden, to demonstrate his authority, actually to call attention to the reality that the king has come. Surely what goes on here would have caused a little stir in that village and the, the word would have gone out by a ripple effect that, that somebody has just requisitioned our cult. That Jesus of Nazareth has commandeered our beast. Jesus could have acted in a way far less conspicuous. But Jesus is making a scene. Jesus, you could say, is flaunting his authority. And that for us is comforting. And that for us is a calling. The comfort is that we see Jesus has everything at his disposal to save us. It was a little comforting this past week to see the President of the United States invoke the Defense Production Act. It's a little comforting to see that somebody has authority to demand that people make the things we need to be safe and saved. How much more comforting to see that Jesus Christ has all authority. 
He has all of creation at his disposal. He can lay claim to anything in the world for the sake of delivering us and saving us. Anything. He can tell ocean waters and waves to be quiet, to be still. He can tell winds to die down. He can move mountains. He can do anything in the world to save us. He has that authority from above. But it's also then a calling, isn't it, for us to yield to his authority. Psalm 110 says, Your people will be volunteers in the day of your power. They will be willing in the day of your battle. And, and it's a marvelous thing, isn't it, that when the, when the disciples say, The Lord needs it, the owners let the donkey go. Christ is still invested with authority to bring glory to God on earth, and he has the right to take our donkey, to take our truck, to take our job. He has the right to take my money, take my hobby, to take my health. He has authority over everything we have, everything we are, everyone we love. Now that's not always fun, is it? It's one thing to talk this morning about the president's Authority and the governor's authority to demand, to requisition. It's another thing if it was your hospital and you had painstakingly amassed supplies over the course of many years and you had worked hard to prepare for such a crisis while many were irresponsible. You were diligent. Now they're just going to come in and take your stuff? You want to have that on hand for your people. Or it's, you know, something if you own a factory and you have worked hard to, to build the machinery to set things up so you can make a profit. Now they come in and tell you what you have to make and how much you have to make and it cuts into your profits and your plans. Christ's authority is not theoretical, it's real, it's practical, it affects life. For those who have faced the demands of governor or president, of course, they can comfort themselves by the thought that they're helping their fellow citizens. Uh, their leaders are trying to do what's good and right for the country, for the city. But as Christians, of course, we have a far greater comfort, don't we? That the one who demands of us, the one who takes, is the perfect king. He takes nothing from us to harm us. And even in this COVID-19 crisis, what the Lord would take from us is not to harm us. Whatever that means by way of our broken plans and schedule or our finances or the enjoyment of our fellowship with each other, or even our health. Jesus does not take from his people to harm them. He's the perfect king. He knows everything. He loves us dearly. The glory of God and our salvation is in the hands of Jesus Christ. And he is the righteous and authorized king who comes to do its good. It's easy to surrender things into Christ's hand when we can see the good, when we understand the purpose, when it all makes sense. 
It's far more difficult when it doesn't make any sense at all. We don't see why he needs to take it. But notice, secondly, this morning that that's actually the very way Christ's kingdom comes and the way unexpected. And so we see in our text not just the claim that Jesus makes, but, but we notice, secondly, the, the strange way that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, surpassing all human expectations. You know, at first, everyone's quite excited, aren't they? We, we see that the cult is is gotten, and, and when he comes back to the disciples, then they bring the colt to Jesus, and the disciples begin to throw their clothes on the colt to seat Jesus on the colt, and then people begin to spread their clothes on the road and to cut down branches and spread them out. Everyone's excited. They, they wanted Jesus to proclaim himself king, and now at last he's going to do it. But what's going on here? Why is Jesus going to ride into Jerusalem on a colt? Actually, the Bible scholars tell us it was rather an unusual thing to ride into Jerusalem on a colt. Because even the pilgrims that might ride an animal to Jerusalem from a far off distance, when they got there, they would complete their journey on foot. They would enter the city on foot. Jesus comes riding. Why does he ride in the city? He's not just tired. This is a prearranged thing. He's gone to a lot of trouble to set this all up. He's riding into Jerusalem because this is an act of prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And when you see that, then you realize that Christ entering to Jerusalem on this colt is not some random haphazard idea that he spontaneously comes up with. This is carefully calculated. Christ, in riding in on this donkey, is proclaiming his messianic identity. Remember, Israel had waited so long for the Messiah to be revealed. They had longed for him to come. They had looked to the promises of God. They were waiting for the the son of David to appear. And you know that that Passover time was a time of nationalistic fervor because they remembered that God had set them free from the Egyptian captivity and made them an independent nation. And they were waiting to be free from these Roman oppressors and from this foreign occupying force that, that lived in their country. And now their zeal is tapped as Jesus rides in on the donkey. They go excited, don't they? They begin to sing and to shout, Hosanna, Lord save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This great pilgrim song, they begin to greet the Lord Jesus and to lay down their clothes. And it's really kind of a kingly ceremony, isn't it? Already back in 2 Kings 9, when people realized Jehu was to be king, they, they took off their garments and they spread them before him and they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king! Well, Christ accepts all of this, doesn't he? accepts all their praise and all their activity because it's appropriate. He's, he's worthy of all of this and he's worthy of far more of, uh, than this. 
And, and though they don't really understand all that's going on, or maybe not most of all that's going on, he is the true son of David that has come. And this, this is a, a momentous moment in redemptive history. This is the glorious event the world has been waiting for. The long ago promised king. Think of Genesis 3.15, right? The son of the woman. The son of David now comes riding into the capital city of Jerusalem. Christ fulfills all those Old Testament kingly processions of men who marched up to Jerusalem to take the throne. He fulfills the the Ark of the Covenant being carried up to Jerusalem. This is the fulfillment. It's it's the God-man, Jesus Christ, who's come to save And though the crowds are oblivious to to the true depth and meaning of what's going on, their praise and proclamation is a prophecy of of Christ that he will die on the cross and rise from the dead, ascend into heaven. Amid the shouts of angels, he will take the throne of the universe. It's a, a kind of prophecy of the fact that Christ will send out his spirit and He'll be enthroned in our hearts. It's a a kind of prophecy of the return of Jesus when he'll come on the clouds and we will all rejoice. The king has come to be vindicated. And yet for all their praise, there is something missing, isn't there? They're largely blind to the very way in which Jesus comes. Because Jesus comes not really with so much pomp and ceremony, but with meekness and lowliness. He comes not riding on this wartime stallion, charging in to destroy every enemy and every one of us who've sinned against him. But he comes as that righteous and lowly king of Zechariah 9, humbly, meekly riding on a colt, on a donkey, into this capital city. It's not because Christ is powerless. It's certainly not because he, he lacks an army, right? He's the son of God. He commands legions of angels. But were he to call forth the flaming swords right now, there would be no salvation for us. So he comes. Though he comes with power to claim and to requisition, he comes actually not to take from us. But he comes to give, doesn't he? He comes to give. You see, Jesus had, in chapter 10, taught his disciples an important lesson when they were fighting for prestige and honor in his kingdom. And Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, rulers in the world, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. And then this tremendously important verse, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man, even the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Even the king came not to be served, but to give up his life as payment for your sins. Christ's kingdom is 
majestic in all of its lowliness, isn't it? Christ's kingdom advances not as he promotes his life and lays claim and takes from us and demands of us service, but as he comes in peace to make peace by his own blood on the cross. He doesn't ride in to destroy, but he comes humbly to save. So evident in Luke's account, Luke tells us that as Christ came into Jerusalem, his heart actually broke and his eyes filled with tears. He wept over a city in their rebellion. One writer says, What a strange way for the son of David to return to the seat of David's kingdom. Yet there never was a more regal entry into Jerusalem than on that day. For those who had eyes to see, this was glorious, glorious, glorious. For those who who don't have eyes to see, then the humility is, is counted as weakness and disappointment and finally a complete failure when Jesus hangs limp on a cross. But whose kingdom lasts? The Romans were fond of power and might, human honor. In fact, the the Gospel of Mark was probably written for Christians in Rome, Christians who lived in the imperial capital city. And they had no doubt seen Roman might, Roman glory, Roman power. They had seen soldiers in all of their gear. They had seen probably generals return from triumphant battles and and come parading in through the city to to be decked in the accolades and praises and rewards of their victory. But where is the glory of Rome now? Rome's glory is faded, but Christ has established a kingdom that lasts forever. This kind of a king is a stumbling block, isn't he? For those who don't want to confess their sin. If we just want, you know, a little help in life, because we're pretty good people, then the king that we see here, it's... It's not the king we want. And we say, just tell me what to do. What do I have to do? I want to do. And this king says, sorry, you can't do anything. Your life of yourself is a failure. You're sinful. You're broken. You're bankrupt. I have to do it all for you. Embracing a king who comes to be... Did you all see that? Doesn't matter how many people are here, I can still be clumsy. I got it. Thank you. It's fine. Just a little water. A little pulpit cleaning. All right, now you're all awake at home probably. Didn't get to see you jump this time. But we're safe and sound here. My point is that if we embrace a king who's been crucified... To do that, we have to declare that we need him. We have to acknowledge that this is the kind of king that I need. But you know what? If we will do that, if we will confess this is the kind of king that we need, then we will find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. What have you learned in the past few weeks? about the Lord and his demands upon you? Have you in some ways felt that his law is this great 
unattractive burden. As God has tested you and tried you as he's exposed idols and called you away from them, has you, have you, if you felt in some way that this is, this is a straitjacket, it's annoying. Could it be that you're looking to yourself to win the victory? Looking to yourself to pave the way to God? Looking to yourself? Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, it's only when you embrace this king, riding into Jerusalem on a colt, coming to make peace, not asserting his rights, but coming to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's when you see this Jesus and embrace him as this Savior that suddenly his law is a light thing. But it's even greater than that when we see finally this morning, not just the claim that Jesus makes and not just the way that Jesus comes into the capital city, but as we consider the burden that Jesus assumes for our sakes. Come to verse 11. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around... At all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So verse 11 connects Christ coming into Jerusalem with his going into the temple. In fact, it's as if he goes right into Jerusalem and straight to the temple to the point of of destination. And as Mark brings us there, we're following here with Jesus to the temple. We think we're coming to the momentous moment here, right? That Jesus would be crowned king and take the throne of David. But nothing happens. Ironically, nothing happens. Come to the temple, and now Jesus seems to be, be pretty much alone. And what has happened to the crowds? Where have all the excited people gone? They've all apparently dispersed. And so it seems rather anticlimactic. Christ, all these crowds, all the shouts of praise, comes to Jerusalem, goes to the temple, and nothing. Jesus stands all alone there. But Jesus is not surprised because what's obscure to the people is crystal clear to Jesus. And what's clear to Jesus is that he has come, it's not quite to the moment, the grand finale, but he has come to a key moment. He has come to the temple. He has come to the house of his father. He has come to his father's business. He has come to to the temple, which is the very center of Israel's religious life. And the very emblem that, that not just symbolizes, but facilitates fellowship with God. And yet he must stand there alone. What's he doing at the temple? Is he just one more pilgrim who's made the long journey and, you know, i got to catch a, a glimpse of the temple before the sun goes down. Our family, when we drove out here, a year ago for Thanksgiving, I think it was, we pulled into the town 
where Mount Rushmore is at 9 o'clock at night or something. We, we actually, I don't know if we checked in the hotel first, but we went driving right up to Mount Rushmore, and there wasn't a, a car in the parking lot. The park was open. It wasn't a soul to be found. It was an eerily empty place. But we, we had to catch a glimpse of it before we went to bed. Then we went to bed at the hotel, and then next morning ran back up there to see it in daylight. But is that what Jesus is doing here? He just wants to get a glimpse of it before the sun goes down. No, Mark tells us what he did. Jesus came into the temple and he looked all around at all things. He, he comes into the temple and he makes a commanding survey. He's looking, he's, he's considering, he's pondering, he's sweeping. Jesus is not sightseeing like a curious pilgrim, but he's come as an inspector. An inspector shows up at the job site, or I don't know how it goes on the dairies. Maybe an inspector comes to check sanitation. Inspectors come not for a casual visit. Inspectors come with authority to evaluate for a purpose. Jesus is the Lord of the temple. He comes to investigate. He comes to ask the question, is God's purpose for this building being fulfilled? And isn't it interesting that Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, prophesied in chapter 3 that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Well, Christ comes to inspect the temple here to prepare for what's going to happen. You can read on in Mark 11 today and be reminded about the temple cleansing that Jesus brings. Right? It's going to throw out the money changers, and turn over tables, and he's going to cleanse this place. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. You've taken over the court of the Gentiles, the nations. Their place has been usurped by your desire for profits and cheating people. But I think Christ standing at the temple is even more than that. What Jesus does here is intimately related not just to the temple, but to his death on the cross. Our family and family devotions have been reading from Nehemiah. And remember how the book of Nehemiah begins? Nehemiah is far off in Susa, where God's people had been taken captive years earlier. And now a couple brothers from Jerusalem go all the way to where Nehemiah is at Susa. And when they arrive, Nehemiah says, Well, how's it going in Jerusalem? And they tell him, Not good. Walls crumbled, gates are burned down. And Nehemiah weeps. He is cupbearer to the king, Persia. He gets permission from the king to go back to rebuild. Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. He's there for a few days. Then he gets up one night. And he goes out with just a few people. And he goes out the city and out the gate. And he begins to survey the walls of Jerusalem. Checking out the walls, seeing how bad they are. Because he's going to relaunch a building campaign. And Nehemiah in doing that is taking the responsibility upon his shoulders. When Jesus comes to the temple, he comes to see the destruction. He comes to see the mess it's in because he has come to rebuild. Fixing the problem is not easy. 
And therefore, since it's already late, Jesus goes out. This is not a snap of the fingers fix. This will take a whole day at least. But the Jesus who stands alone at the temple knows that he'll hang alone at the cross. And when we see Jesus here inspecting the temple, I think we see a Savior who is taking upon himself the burden and the responsibility to do, to to rebuild, to fix what's really at stake here, that the relationship, the fellowship between God and his people, which was supposed to be symbolized and facilitated by the temple, that it's broken. But when Jesus comes to rebuild, it won't be just like Nehemiah. Nehemiah would not build alone, but many hands would help him. And Nehemiah's rebuilding could make use of the rubble that was there and add to it, could build up the broken walls. When Jesus comes to build, he must tear down completely. And when he comes to build, he must build all alone. I think this COVID-19 crisis is a fertile plain for considering communion and isolation. Tonight we plan to look at the communion of the saints. It's a good time, isn't it, to think about the communion of the saints when we miss meeting together. But you know, this is also a good time to think about the aloneness of our Savior. Because one of the most poignant aspects of Christ's suffering revealed in the gospel accounts is that Jesus Christ bears the burden of our sin and our guilt all alone, all by himself. He is such a lonely Savior. Nobody understands his mission. His own disciples don't get it. Nobody can truly go with him all the way. As he hangs on the cross, no one can support him. No one can uphold him. No one can carry part of the burden. And when he's cut off from God, he is all alone. What an amazing thing it is that as the king comes to Jerusalem... He actually comes to begin his reign on a cross. Everyone expects him to go and to sit on the throne. But he goes to begin his reign on the cross. To die our death. To be cut off from man and from God for our sakes. The king the eternal Son of God in our human nature gives himself to this for us. And brothers and sisters, that is a glorious thing. That is the salvation we need. But that is also deeply comforting when Christ comes to inspect our lives. Because you see, this Lord Jesus who inspected the temple is still busy inspecting our lives. In Revelation 1 through 3, he walks among the lampstands. He inspects his congregations in Asia Minor. He knows what's going on in them. We know also from the word that Christ inspects our hearts and he inspects our lives. He examines us today. 
And through this COVID crisis and many other trials, Christ is testing us and he's probing us. But you see, if, if you don't see a Christ who gives his life to save, then all you can be is fearful of his evaluation and, and close the door to his inspection. And, and maybe when he comes knocking, we're trying to do that. We're trying to keep him out and close the door and not let him in. I've stood at houses before and front doors with an elder to visit somebody who hasn't been at church. And I've, I've watched them at times get nervous and try not to let the office bearers in to see what's really going on in their home. But you see, that kind of fear arises from a heart that does not embrace this king. If we believe he comes to rebuild, not just to tear down and throw out and cleanse the temple, but he comes by his own sacrificial death to rebuild and to make new life with God, fellowship with the Lord, then we aren't afraid of what we might lose. When he comes to put his finger on our selfish attitude in our homes. When he comes to point out our idols and demand that we get rid of them. You see, if we embrace him, if we know him as the Savior who gives his life for us, then we don't have to hide stuff in the closet. But we open our hearts and our lives and we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come show me my sin. Come examine my life. Come show me that selfish attitude in my marriage where I've mistreated my spouse. Come show me that that angst and frustration toward my children is wrong. Come show me that those fantasies and those thoughts of, of being rich are not where my mind should go. Come show me that my habits of using my time, wasting it on frivolous things is not right. Come examine me, Lord, and show me my sin. Because I know that when you cast out, it's so that you can build anew. You see, when you know that Jesus has come not to shame you and hang you up naked, but he himself has come to bear your shame and your sin and to hang naked for you, then, then you know that he loves you. And then you trust him. And then you want him to come in. The king is at the door. Do you love him? Do you trust him? Do you welcome him to come in? Let us do that. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our meek and lowly king who rides in not to destroy but to save Open our hearts, open our lives to him, we pray. May he remove all that doesn't belong and may he build anew on the foundation of his precious blood. Oh God, we thank you that through his death you restored fellowship with yourself and the temple, Jesus Christ himself, has been found at last. Oh God in heaven, hear our prayer for Jesus' sake, amen.